good to be with you. My wife, Kathy's in the back. Wave your hand. She's a back row Baptist. And Jim's wife, Charlotte, has humbled herself to go and sit in the back with Kathy, crossing the cultural barriers to get back there, which is what we do in missions. This is Mission Sunday. And so it's a delight to be able to come to you today, be with you, share God's word, which I trust will be of great encouragement to each one of us as we engage in scripture together. Uh, Permit me to start by introducing my family. Let me try that again. There we go. There's my family. All right, so Kathy and I celebrated our 50th anniversary last June, and we have three adult children. I take the applauses for her because she had the hard work, so she deserves the applause. But we have three adult children and 11 grandchildren, nine grandsons, and two granddaughters. And uh, it's quite a, quite a bunch when we all get together, and the girls do quite well in fending for themselves, so we are extremely blessed. And everybody in that picture lives near us. We live on the southwest uh, side of Baltimore, outside the Baltimore Beltway in a little town called Catonsville, about 10 minutes from the Baltimore-Washington International Airport. And uh, it's just great to be with you today. I'm so uh, thankful for the opportunity. Thank you, Jim, for the invitation. Uh, so uh, believe that we're here today to hear something from God, that God wants to speak to us through his word and encourage us. Uh, There is a a little insert in the bulletin. If you're a note taker, you want to follow the outline a little more carefully, uh, you can also uh, take advantage of that. The title of today's message uh, suggests that one of the purposes of affliction is education. I don't know if that has ever become a thought that's crossed your mind or not, It certainly had not crossed my mind back in 1991 when I embarked on a two and a half journey into the darkness of the night shift and enrolled in God's school of affliction and uh, discovered that God has some incredible pedagogical methods by which he teaches us. I wasn't even aware of the fact that I needed that much education at that point, Uh, but God knew best. And so I want to focus my thoughts today on taking night school classes in God's school of affliction. That may sound like an odd topic or an odd title for Mission Sunday. You perhaps came expecting a stirring challenge to go to the ends of the earth. And the problem, of course, is that until we are educated in God's ways and have studied in God's night school classes, we are ill-equipped to do anything of significance that's going to benefit the kingdom of God. That's what I learned during my two and a half years, 1991 to 1993, while I was on the night shift. And of course, I'm not suggesting that the night shift is a one-time experience. I've cycled through a few times, and I'm sure many seasoned veterans of the night shift are here today who know whereof I speak. Uh, We live in the real world. I'm not here today to give pie-in-the-sky Christian feel-good thoughts. Uh, the scriptures are real. They're down-to-earth. They're nitty-gritty. Uh, they meet us where we live. Everybody in scripture who was worth anything endured great afflictions. 
Everybody in church history and missions history who accomplished anything for the gospel was a great sufferer. It's inescapable that God intends to use affliction in the lives of his people. And so the assumption is that we might have something to learn. Now, we give credence to that on the surface. Of course, you know, we can't possibly know everything. There's got to be something more to learn. Uh, but in the reality uh, of life, we either are not totally convinced or we want to learn in some other way than the way that perhaps God might use to instruct us. Can't there be an easier way? Can I go to day school classes? Does it have to be at night? Does it have to involve affliction? Some of those are the uh, things that should be of concern to us. And so I, I want to challenge us today to think about the big questions that sh we should be asking about affliction. One of the big questions is, what do I need to learn? What do I need to learn? Is there something God needs to teach me that I have not yet learned well. I used to sing a song called, I must wait, wait, wait on the Lord. I must wait, wait, wait on the Lord. And in his timing, he will show me what to do, where to go, what to say. And another chorus, very similar, says, and when I've learned my lessons well. Notice that. And waiting on God, we learn our lessons well. What do I need to learn? And how can this particular affliction that I'm enduring be a teachable moment for me? What does God want to teach me through the circumstances that I am going through at the moment? And does God have a pedagogical methodology and strategy by which he works in the lives of his people? Or is life somewhat random and the afflictions that come my way, we'd like to dodge those bullets and we do our best? Or if they hit us, we'd like to heal up very quickly, but is there another methodology and strategy that is at work in the kingdom of God? Well, I do have a text for today. It's on the insert. It's also on the screen. It's found in Psalm 40, verses 1 to 3. Uh, would you read off the screen with me? Let's read in unison uh, these verses. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and listened to my cry. So he drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon our rock, making my steps secure. Then he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many shall see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes today to see new things out of your word. May scripture come alive to us. May we see the implications of your word practically in the here and now, right where we are, not where we wish we were, but where we find ourselves today. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, from 1991 to 1993, after being out of seminary for about two decades, having served as a pastor in a couple different churches and in different ministries, I found myself out of the business. I was no longer in Christian service. I had no idea why. I wasn't sure what had happened, but it happened. And having three young children and a mortgage and all that kind of thing, I had to figure out what to do. I had no other marketable skills except ministry-related stuff. 
though I could drive. So I ended up driving tour buses and oil trucks for two and a half years. And uh, it was not, uh, my calling for sure was not my preference, but it was what God gave me during that time. And he taught me some incredible lessons in those 36 months. That was quite a journey that I went on. And as a result of my journey, I wrote a book called Night Shift. And I have copies available. Kathy's got some in the back. There's more in the car, uh, if necessary. And this book was a byproduct of all that happened during that two and a half years. When it ended and I became a pastor again, I still hadn't quite put my finger on what God was doing in my life. Uh, But I began to journal and write about it. And the thing that was critical for me is I'd spent almost the entirety of those 36 months in these three verses, Psalm 41 to 3. It sounds a little hard to imagine, and I look back, and I'm not sure how I did it either, but I was digging into this text and finding that there was food for my soul right there. God was meeting me in that text. And every time I went to it, there was a new nugget. There was new things, and I began to write about this and journal about it, and eventually it started to come into chapters and And uh, publishing a book is a daunting challenge and a long trek, but eventually a publisher expressed interest, and I ended up publishing this book or uh, having this book published. The subtitle is God Uses the Afflictions and Sufferings of Life to Equip Us, Prepare Us for Greater Usefulness. That's what Scripture tells us. We don't become more useful in spite of, of affliction and suffering. God intends to use affliction and suffering to prepare us to be of greater use in the kingdom of God. So in this book, I I detailed uh, my journey a bit as uh, well as I developed some of God's ways that he uses affliction and how he used it in my life. And by the way, I'm not saying I suffered greatly. I'm a a small-time sufferer. You know, I'm not a big-time sufferer. There's people that I know and I've read about whose sufferings uh, make anything I've ever been through pale into insignificance. But that's not the point. If you suffer, your suffering is great, regardless of how badly someone else is suffering. I've often thought, you know, if, uh, if I had, for instance, a toothache and it was bothering me, and someone came to me and said, you know, my house just burned down and uh, I've lost everything. I'd say, that's really sad, but, you know, my tooth is killing me right now, you know, because, see, your suffering is personal and you can't lay it aside as if it's nothing because there's something else going on in the world. And so for me, my suffering was pers- personal. And I was discovering what a great teacher God is, and I never knew that before. I learned things in two and a half years that I'd not learned in four years of Bible college and four years of seminary and four years of extra religious education in another institution. None of that equaled what I learned in two and a half years driving trucks and buses because God was engaged in my life. He was doing something. And I want to share that with you this morning. Because I know everybody in here knows about suffering. 
young and old alike. Sometimes when I speak on this topic, if there's teenagers or college students in the audience, their eyes start to glaze over and I think, well, that's the way it should be because you have not yet suffered enough to understand how much you need to learn about suffering. But when I speak to seasoned veterans of the Christian faith, I can see that they perk up because they say, yes, I've been there and I am there and I'll probably be there again. This is such relevance to our lives. Well, the starting point of the educational process is a first stage. There's actually seven stages of this process that I discerned in Psalm 41 to 3. I want to give you those seven this morning and comment briefly on each one of them. And so I learned about these seven stages, and the first stage is called what the Bible calls the pit. And as you look at Psalm 41 to 3, you see it's not the first thing in the passage, but it's the first logical thing that we're confronted with, because verses 1 to 3 do not exist apart from the pit. You take the pit out of verses 1 to 3, nothing else makes sense. This is where everything begins. And somehow, this is going to turn out well. But you see, when you're in the pit, it's hard to imagine how things are going to turn out well. And if you can envision how things are turning, going to turn out well, you're probably not in a pit. Because, see, the pit is in the darkness. It's where you can't see clearly. Something's going on, but you can't decipher exactly what it is. And so the pit is the first logical step in the process of what God is doing. And God is doing his best work. Notice this, out of sight. I began to think about how God does this. And, of course, we know that certain things grow in plain sight. Corn, apple trees, whatever. Uh, but there's a lot of things in God's economy that he decided should happen beyond the ability of humans to observe. Carrots grow underground. Beets, radishes. Worms are busy doing their thing under the ground. Mushrooms grow in the dark best. You see, the thing about God's economy is, yes, there is the visible stuff, uh, but the things that really make that happen... The chemistry of it all is found out of sight, underground. God does his best work, I believe, in the darkness, out of sight. Well, think about this for a moment. This is a metaphor. What idea does the metaphor of the pit convey? It's a metaphor of loneliness, misery, affliction, suffering, Forsakenness, helplessness, and hopelessness. Word pictures are powerful, aren't they? David wrote this. He could have said, you know, uh, things were just going badly and then and continue on his way. But no, he picked a word picture because he wanted the reader to be grabbed by what was going on beyond just an intellectual sense. When you think of a pit, it gives you a visual picture. In other places, scriptures use ideas like uh, lions devouring us, drowning in water, herds of bulls surrounding us and stomping on the ground and snorting in a desire to destroy us, a pack of dogs attacking. These are all from the book of Psalms, and there are many more. These word pictures 
convey the heart and passion of sufferers. When you're in the pit, man, this is real stuff. And you feel it. Your emotions are stirred by what is going on. And so David selected a really graphic word, didn't he? Picture the pit. This hole in the ground. It could have been dug originally for stories. It could have been dug for as a, maybe as a produ- productive well at one point. Now it's kind of not doing its thing, but it's still kind of slimy. Might be a, you know, an inch of water in the bottom. Book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was thrown into exactly that kind of thing. That was his place where he was, he was to uh, be put, and he hated that. He was dumped unceremoniously down into this pit. And he couldn't get out. And I want you to know that this is one of the things about a pit experience. If you can figure out how to get out of it, you're not in a pit. If you think it's not so bad, you're probably not in a pit. A pit is a place of hopelessness. One of the words that really describes this is this four-letter word, loss. This is a place of loss. David has lost something. We don't know the specific situation that David was going through when he wrote Psalm 40. Some psalms have a little heading that tell us, but this one doesn't. So we're left to surmise. We read the life of David and we we wonder, David, what was going on when you talked about being in a pit? What was your pit? Was Saul chasing you and trying to kill you? Were one of your kids stirring up trouble as we know they were wont to do? David had lost something. Maybe he had lost freedom, maybe mobility. Maybe he's hiding in caves. Maybe his health is deteriorating. We see that in some of his psalms. For us, it could be health. It could be marital problems. It could be financial struggles. It could be relationship breakdowns. It could be job loss or job struggles. It could be family issues. And yes, dare I say it, it could be church problems. I know you folks know nothing about church problems. (laughs) It could be church problems, and that's coming from me, a seasoned veteran of the misery that can come with being involved in churches. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that disparagingly. We've sung about the church of God. The church's one foundation is Christ. Our Lord, we gather today because of him. This is a great convening of the saints. It's no wonder that Satan takes such great delight in launching his attacks at the body of Christ. With this pit comes disillusionment and grief. Think of your pit experience right now. Can you come up with a word picture to describe what you might be going through? Do you feel like a pack of dogs are trying, snarling, trying to get at you? Do you feel like you're cornered in a cave? Do you feel like bulls are wanting to stomp upon you? Do you feel like you're drowning in water? Or are you just down in this miry muck called a pit? Well, what do we do when we go into pits? When things are hopeless and helpless? We don't give up. We try. That's the human nature, right? And that's the Christian nature. We struggle. We work hard. We scheme. How can I get out of this thing? 
One time I was uh, marooned in Nepal. There was a landslide and the roads were washed out and I had to get back to the capital city for a flight out and I couldn't get out. And some might think, well, that's a, really a bad situation. Not so bad. I had a credit card and there was an airport in the city where I was and I bought a ticket and I flew back to the capital. That was not a pit. You see, I could solve that problem. And we have the capacity to solve a lot of problems. Those are not pit experiences because we can figure out how to get out of them. This is a situation where we struggle and we, sc- we scheme and, and strategize and, and uh, try to figure out, how can I fix this thing? And you can't fix it. It's an awful experience, isn't it? Especially for Americans. We like to think we can fix anything. Takes money, takes technology, whatever it takes, we can fix our problems. And so what do we have to do when all else has failed? And that brings us to the second stage of the pit, and that is the wait. We must wait. Now, I wanted you to notice right away, I have purposely scored the word patiently. It does not belong in this verse. And I'm not just saying that because of some theory I have. I've actually studied the Hebrew text of this verse, and the idea of patiently is not in there, even though all the major versions have patiently in there. But doesn't human experience teach us that? Anybody here a good patient waiter? You're in the doctor's office. The hands on the clock are moving. Ah, two, three hours, I don't care. Take your time, doc. No. You've gone out to a restaurant. You're waiting for your buzzer to go off. You're looking at it. You're waiting. Why is it taking so long? What's wrong with these people? Why can't they clear their tables so we can get in? You know, we're not good waiters. That's, patient waiting is an oxymoron. It doesn't work together. And we need to understand that's not what this verse is telling us at all. You see, we're powerless to extricate ourselves. We can only wait. And true waiting is never patient. If you are being patient in your afflictions, you're not in a pit. And you're not waiting. Because true waiting is never patient when we are being truly afflicted. Some versions have struggled with this a little bit. As I said, most of the major translations say, I waited patiently. Well, you know, forget about that. If you mark your Bible, put a line through the word patiently. It doesn't belong in there. I hesitate to recommend this, because, but it's, sometimes it's helpful. There's a paraphrase called the message that most of the time kind of I find appalling, but I always go to it because I'm curious. What did Eugene Peterson do with this verse? And here's what he says. I waited. I waited for Yahweh. I waited and waited for Yahweh. That's a little different than patient waiting, isn't it? The New Jerusalem Bible simply says, I waited, I waited for Yahweh or the Lord. I would translate it as, I impatiently waited for the Lord. Because you see, God has a different sense of time than we do. To me, it was logical that I would naturally, within days or a couple weeks at most, find myself in a new ministry. And it wasn't happening. You know, that's true helplessness, isn't it? When you're in a predicament, you cannot do anything about it except wait. And you don't even know what you're waiting for exactly or what you're waiting is going to accomplish. You simply have to wait. 
Waiting is no pleasant exercise. There are books uh, with the title like Waiting on God, and you picture somebody with a cup of coffee sitting on the veranda on the morning with their Bible open, like you see on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. People are so delighted that they have this time to sip their coffee and read their Bibles, and the sun is streaming in, and the flowers are blooming in the background. That's not waiting on God. I'm not diminishing reading your Bible with the sun coming in the window and flowers in the background and having coffee. I'm simply saying that's not what David's talking about. If you're picturing David sitting somewhere near Bethlehem, maybe by the, uh, a spring or a well or some fresh water, and he's there and he's got his sunglasses on in a recliner and he's reading the Torah or whatever, that's not this. And so David is uh, a picture of frustration and impatience here. This is frustration. Intensification of helplessness and longing occurs in the pit. And there's a temptation to even give up, to abandon hope. And I will tell you personally, for 36 months, I scratched my head. I had no idea what was going on, and I had no idea how I was supposed to fix my situation. All I could do every day was read Psalm 40, 1 to 3, go to work, put one foot in front of the other, hope I brought enough money home to cover the bills, and keep on doing that day after day after day. The delays are excruciating when you're waiting on God. And our hearts were saying, I want this to end now, stat. But we still have so much to learn. You see, a patient, impatience in affliction really shows us how little we understand about the ways of God. I'm not criticizing us. We're all terrible waiters. Let's, let's just agree on that. Start an organization in the church, WA, Waiters Anonymous. We can all get together and talk about what miserable waiters we are. When we're impatient and we're waiting in the pit, it shows our need of education. Our failure to understand that every trial is some, in some way God is teaching in that moment. Trials are intended to make us think, to ask questions, to wean us from the things that we find most precious and that give us comfort. We're wrenched out of our comfort zone. We're driven to prayer, to God's word. Comfort's a good thing. Discomfort is better. We want the good thing, right? Discomfort's better if it leads us to God. Prosperity is a great mercy, but adversity is better if it brings us nearer to Jesus. And so we have to wait. And eventually what happens is being forced to wait like this in a pit endlessly, impatiently, is that we learn to talk to God. The result is we learn what it means to talk to God. David says, the Lord heard my cry. We don't know how long he waited, but the assumption is that throughout the pit experience and at some point 
in the waiting process, after David gave up all of his schemes and all of his ways of struggling to figure out how to get out of this situation, David started praying. These were not flowery prayers. There weren't a lot of these and thous in this prayer. They were not, wasn't poetic necessarily. It was, it was earthy. Because that's what you do when you're in the pit. And you have to wait. I have a theory. My theory is if everything was always well and we were affliction-free, we would probably rarely talk to God. Probably everybody knows in this room that your richest times of prayer have often been your most desperate moments. And that's what David did. He cried out to God. What does stage three tell us? Stage three tells us that afflicted people learn to talk to God out of their frustration and helplessness. When in the pit, prayer is often, get this word, complaint. A lot of people have read my book and I've gotten a lot of feedback, but the only objection to my book that I've ever heard is in this third chapter when I talk about complaining to God. People don't like that. Say, whoa, wait a minute. We can't talk to God like that. Well, the easy answer is David did, and it's in Scripture. Moses complained to God. Moses got downright angry with God and told him so. Exodus 33, 11, The Lord talked with Moses as a man talks with his friend face to face. And guess what? You got a problem with your friend, you get in his face or her face. You tell them what you're thinking if you have a little bit of confrontational chemistry in you. See, what happens is, first of all, the pit creates the need to pray. We may not feel the, the need to pray when things are going well. So the pit is like the stimulus, the thing that creates this need. I, I better start talking to God because things are not going well for me. Then we have to wait. That accentuates our helplessness, and now we ratchet up the tone a bit in our prayers. And finally, the cry. It's unleashing all of our doubts and fears, our wants, our needs, our frustrations. We unleash all of them on God. Because after all, we know it is his fault I mean, the truth of the matter is, whether God causes a problem or allows a problem, either way, he could prevent it. And I'm in this mess, a mess that God could have prevented, and he didn't do it. And I'm really irritated with God right now because he let me get into this fix. And he's not in any big hurry to get me out of it. And so we cry out. This is not mature prayer, necessarily. We're not praying for missionaries. We're not praying for the advance of the gospel in other places. Because when you have a toothache, the only thing you really care about is getting your toothache fixed. And so our prayers at this stage are just immature, saying, Daddy, Daddy, where are you? Help me. Help me get out of this mess. And yet that's vital communication. 
I believe our father loves that kind of communication. I remember when my kids were teenagers. I don't know if you've experienced this or not, but when my kids became teenagers, they stopped talking to me. When my daughter or my son came home from kindergarten, you couldn't shut them up with excitement about what went on in school. But when they came home from seventh grade, how was school today? Mm, That's about the extent of it. It's okay. And I found that if I could just get my kids talking to me about anything, it was so much fun to hear their voice and get their ideas and interact with them. As you can see from the picture, they all became adults, somehow, miraculously, responsible citizens who talk like mature adults. It's just an amazing transformation. Many of us know what that's like. And we despaired at one point that that could ever happen. But when they were little, they were simply seeing me as the one who could fix things. Dad, can I have a lollipop? Dad, can we go swimming? Can I go down and do this? Uh, will you read to me? Whatever. It was the, I, was, I was the great resource. I was the great ATM they could put their one card into and punch the PIN number, and I could provide their resources. And often we feel that way about God as well. And if you're in the pit, that's the way you feel. This is complaining. When I was working on my book, I decided to read the entire book of Psalms because I was curious about this idea of complaining, and I discovered, I was shocked to discover, that 15 to 20% of the book of Psalms is complaining. Now, I go to a lot of churches. We sing praise choruses, many of them taken from the book of Psalms. I've never heard one praise chorus Revolve around the idea of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. That might be a downer. I don't know. The truth of the matter is, while we might not want to sing like that, every person in the pew at one point or another feels abandoned by God. And we come to church and we sing praises to God even though we feel like he's distant and he's not even showing interest in our problems. The book of Psalms is a song as a book of reality. Murmuring is when you talk to others about how badly God is treating you and how unfair life is. Notice that. Murmuring is talking to others about how unfair God is. That's like your kids talking to their friends about what a lousy parent you are. Murmuring is roundly condemned in Scripture. God gets furious at his people when they murmur because they're complaining to one another, people who have no ability to solve the problem. But you see, complaining is when we talk to God about how badly he's treating us. Well, that's the right way to go about it because after all, he's the only one who can fix it anyway. That's like kids talking to their parents about what a lousy parent we are. We may not like to hear that, but that's sure a lot better than them talking to their friends about what lousy parents we are. There are levels to this prayer. Level one, there's a primitive prayer. There's five levels, I think, that happen in prayer and in evolution. Level one, the primitive prayer, which says, God, I hate my life. I hate my suffering. I'm angry at you for how you're treating me. Can't you do a better job in my life? That sounds awful for me to say, but... That's exactly what we find many times in the book of Psalms. That's what we find in Moses talking with God. 
That's what we find in Jeremiah when he accuses God of the most horrible things. See, godly people in Scripture feel perfectly comfortable complaining to God. And God says, thank you for talking to me. (laughs) He loves it when his children talk to them. The second level is a more basic level. Lord, please take these problems away. Fix this situation. Level three would be an intermediate level. Lord, what are you trying to teach me through this situation? We're not there at first. We have to evolve to that level as the struggles. That's why the, the pit has to linger on for so long. We have to come to that point of relinquishment. Level four, the more advanced level. God, I pray you would get much glory through these afflictions. That's not an immediate thing that we pray, is it, when we have problems? You get the flu and you just don't just say, well, God, you know, let this flu hang around as long as possible because I want you to get the most afflict- uh, glory from my afflictions. And level five is the ultimate. God, thank you for these afflictions. I invite you to let them remain till I've learned my lessons well. And you have gotten great glory through me. That's the Super Bowl of prayers. That's the ultimate. But we're not there most of the time. But we want to aspire to that. And the pit can can start to nudge us in that direction. Before affliction, prayer was a perceived value. But now desperation has made it an actual value. I don't just give lip service to prayer now. I'm desperate. And this is the result of the pit and the weight. Well, God is so good in that he's faithful to listen to us as we cry out to him. And he answers. Notice in verse 1, as I waited and waited and waited for the Lord... He inclined, he leaned towards me. You picture God, David's down in the pit and God's kind of peering over the edge. What's that noise coming out of there? Oh, somebody's crying out to me. David, God is leaning, he's extending down to David. And he's listening. In scripture, biblical listening always involves a result of some kind. It's not just that God listened and said, well, that was interesting, David, but I got other things to do. I'll I'll see you later. No, the, list, the extending, the leaning, the listening implies God's going to also respond. When God listens, he eventually speaks. And so he inclined and he listened. And so stage four is the answer. During our affliction, we must wait. We can only cry out to God. There may seem to be silence. We may say things like, well... My prayers only seem to go as far as the ceiling. They're bouncing off the ceiling. But that's an illusion in prayer when we're in the pit. He is listening. He will answer. But he answers in a specific way by opening his word. And that's what I began to experience from Psalm 41 to 3. As my pit experience lingered on and on, I wasn't immediately delivered. But now I felt like God was speaking to me. We want God to talk to us and to act. We may not think that he is, but every time you pick up your Bible and read a verse of Scripture, that is the voice of God. You don't need more necessarily. God can do with that whatever he wants. You say, Lord, why don't you talk to me? Well, did you read a verse of Scripture? God was talking to you. You may not have known for sure what he was saying, You may have wanted more, but God was talking to you. He 
speaks through his word. The pit drives us to his word. We long for God to speak. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. You pray that prayer, guess what God's going to say? Great, I got a night school class for you. I spent three, two and a half years in three verses to hear God speak to me. Thankfully, God is the God who rescues his people. Brings us to stage five, which is the rescue. Notice how David articulates it. He brought me up. Put my feet on a rock. My footsteps become firm or became firm. This is the mighty act of God that the people of God has celebrated throughout Scripture and throughout history. We sang about the God of the armies today. Lord Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts is his name. He has armies at his disposal. In your affliction, he is not incapacitated. He's not impotent. He has legions of hosts of armies. He's got a massive army. And he's got people at work in your life. I love William Blackaby's uh, study, Experiencing God. Anybody here ever done Experiencing God? A couple hands. And one of his first principles is God is always at work in all places at all times which means God is at work here, not just in that other place, this place. This is where God is at work today. He's present here. He's doing something. He's the God of the army. We sang, I will not fear. Why don't we fear? Because he's the God of the armies. I'm tempted to be afraid. Psalms are very clear on that. David was afraid. And we're afraid, and we lose sight of this because in the pit, rescue seems so unlikely. Think of your pit. What would the rescue look like? It seems so unlikely that that could happen, doesn't it? And so in stage five in the rescue, we find out that in his timing, by his methods, and for his unique purposes, God makes a change. He alters our direction and brings stability. I love Psalm 31 where the psalmist is talking about his enemies surrounding him and all he can say to God is, my times are in your hand. I love that expression. Because that psalmist would like at that very moment to be delivered, for God to boldly act, to part the waters, to send angels, to do whatever. And that's not happening. My times are in your hand, says the psalmist. His method. How will the rescue magnify his grace, his purposes? How will the timing and method of how God rescues me in some way alter my thinking about life, change my direction, bring stability to me? God has great things that he's doing. We can't always see them. We, don't, we sometimes lose sight of that reality, and the rescue reminds us of that. Glad somebody said I could preach as long as I wanted, but no, we're getting there. One of the results of being rescued is the change in the music that we sing. Notice stage six, the new song. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. I love this metaphor. We have the metaphor of the pit. Now we've got the metaphor of a song. I don't think he's necessarily simply talking about music, but David being a musician, he probably had a little bit of that in his mind at least. 
singing something different. It's a metaphor for a fresh approach. Things look differently now that I've gone through the pit and the weight and I've cried out to God and I've learned how to complain to God. And he answered me and spoke to me in his word and he brought me up. Now I have something different on my lips. My father used to say to me when I was in a rebellious mood or disobedient, he said, don't worry, David, I'll have you sing in a different tune very shortly. I knew what he meant. He meant I was singing a tune, but I was going to get some new music given to me. He was quite good at that. What is this new song? It's, it's a fresh take on life. It reflects how we have uh, learned to see our lives, ourselves, and God differently. Our old song, there is an old song, self-centered, complaining, how badly life is going, everything's dark, probably Eeyore and, and uh, Winnie the Pooh is probably the great metaphor for the old song. Oh, everything's so dark and bad. And, but our new song has grateful lyrics and it reflects a keen interest in God's purposes. So it's a message and we may sing it musically or we may speak it, however it comes out of us. It oozes out of our pores now. We've discovered there's just more important things in life than ourselves. We've got a new reorientation to God himself and his grand purposes. Notice even in Psalm 40, verse 5, we have evidence that David's heart is now filled with praise. You've multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds. Immediately after he talks about being given this new song, he bursts into it in verse 5. No one can compare with you. Didn't we just sing this morning, there is no one like our God? Well, we sing that in church, but we need to learn that as a reality in the pit, too. It's one thing to sing it in church. It's another thing to sing it as a result of being given a new song. Psalm 40, verse 9, I have told the glad news in the congregation. See, when the new song is acquired, our whole focus changes. It turns to God, his power, his love, his wisdom, his grace and mercy. Everything looks different. We can say, as we sang this morning, how great is our God. But now we can say it with authenticity. Now it's a genuine confession because we've really learned that. It's one thing to know that God is great theoretically. It's another thing to have learned it on the night shift in night school classes where God's pedagogy kicks in. And finally, stage seven, the ultimate objective of the whole process becomes clear at this point. It doesn't end with us simply being happy. It ends with a new purpose, a new sense of purpose. We try to engender that many times. So when I speak at missions conferences, I rarely speak on missions. I'm called a missions mobilizer. I say, don't call me that. Call me a God mobilizer. I want to mobilize people for God. We can't be mobilized for mission if we have no vision for God, if our knowledge of God is inadequate. And so David says, as a result of all of this, guess what happened? I got a new vision for how people can be impacted by my experience. 
When he went into the pit in stage one, did he ever dream, even for a moment, could he ever have imagined that his descent into the pit would lead to such an amazing outcome? When I was going through my two and a half years of my night shift, I never dreamed that in 20, 25, 30 years, whatever it is now, I'd be standing in Bethlehem Church preaching this message. I didn't even have this message. I, I could not have preached this if I had not gone through that experience. After it was over and I was called to a new church, I was asked to candidate. And they gave me four consecutive Sundays to preach four sermons to candidate. And I preached four consecutive sun- Sundays on the pit. That may not be the best way to candidate for a church, right? And I'll never forget man sitting in the audience. And I preached the first Sunday. I remember what my focus was that particular one. I think it was the first Sunday. After the sermon, he rushed to the front and he said, where did you get this material? I was astonished. I cut it out of Psalm 40. What do you think? But that wasn't what he really wanted to know. Where did you acquire this insight? And I told him, let me take you out to lunch. I'll tell you about the last two and a half years of what I've gone through, where I learned this message. Moses could not lead the people out of Egypt till he went through 40 years in the wilderness. I could not preach this message today if I had not gone through a pit experience. And God intends that for each one of us. You see, the impact is where the pit cycle ultimately enhances our usefulness. Graduates of night school classes have a new capacity and a new passion for God himself, for what God can do in their lives. This really shows up in all kinds of places where David talks about how much he's suffered and how much he's been afflicted. And even in this psalm, Psalm 40, verse 9, where he says, I have proclaimed glad tidings in the congregation. I have proclaimed, I will not restrain, I have not hidden, I have spoken, I have not concealed. Notice, he can't help himself but talk about God and his goodness now. Before the pit, he was whining probably. Oh, Saul's always chasing me. God, why are you so mean to me? Now David's saying, I can't be, you can't shut me up in talking about God. Because he understands God's purpose, his intentions. He's able to have zeal for God's purposes being achieved. He's now useful. He has a new capacity of being beneficial in God's work and purposes. And he can now make impact. That means he has a favorable impact on the advance of God's kingdom as we influence others in the ways of God. All because... He went through a pit experience, and God met him, and God wants to do that in this congregation. Whether it exists in another month or not doesn't change the fact that God is doing a great work in the world, in New Jersey, in Randolph, in this building, and in your lives. Nothing can thwart that. Nothing. God's great passion is to prepare useful servants by using the trials of life to educate and equip us. Father, we thank you today for your greatness. We thank you for who you are. We are impressed from your word with all that you do. 
And we thank you today that in our afflictions, you are at work. What a mighty God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.